Hello, and welcome to the Reach or Miss Show, the podcast for the customer-focused entrepreneur, where Hayut Yogev speaks with entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs about reaching or missing the critical point of approaching the right customer with the right message at the right time and place. The point where business success starts. And here is your host, Hayut Yogev. Rich or Miss, episode 151. Hey, Riches, this is Hayut. It's a new week, and I'm so happy to be here. My guest today, Ted Rubin, said, It's always about relationships. For me, it will always be about return on relationships. And speaking about relationships, I would be very happy to connect with any one of you. So leave me a comment either in the show notes of this interview or on our site, richomiss.com, on any of my profile pages, at Chayut on Twitter, Chayut Yogev on LinkedIn, or write me an email, Chayut, H-A-Y-U-T, at richomiss.com. I look forward to hearing from you and promise to personally answer any one of you. Ted Rubin is a leading social marketing strategist, Photofy CMO, author, speaker, and provocateur. Ted was the chief social marketing officer at Collective Bias, an early internet to the content and influencer marketing space, and a principal shareholder until the November 2016 Seven Figures acquisition by Enmar. In the words of Collective Bias co-founder and content marketing thought leader, John Andreas, Ted, you were the vision, heartbeat, and soul of Collective Bias. Thank you for building a great company, from innovations like CB Socially to the amazing relationships you built with the blogger influencer community, clients, and employees. You drove the epic growth. His book, Return on Relationships, was released January 2013. How to Look People in the Eye Digitally was released January 2015. And The Edge of Influence, Selling to the Digital Connected Customers, was released in May 2017. Ted is currently writing his latest book, along with business partner and retail thought leader John Andreas, titled Retail Relevancy. Return on Relationships is a term he started using and evangelizing in March 209. It is the basis of Ted's philosophy. It's all about relationships. Let's meet Ted Rubin. Ted Rubin, what a pleasure to have you with me. Hi. Hi, Kaya. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for... Having me on your show, I'm very excited. <laughs> Thank you for coming to my show. I am very excited as well. And I just shared with our listeners what you've done until now. And I would like you to share with us what are you doing and most passionate about today and where are you heading? 
Well, you know, that's a really good question. To be perfectly honest, which I always try to be, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not really sure where exactly where I'm heading. And, and I think anybody who tells you they know exactly where they're heading is probably fooling themselves just because all of us have detours. A lot of us, uh, almost everything we work on evolves as it goes. Certainly we have, we have goals, but very often, at least in my life, I've always had to realign those goals with mm. the changes that take place while I'm trying to achieve them. So right now, um, most of my time and my direction is involved with a company called Photify. Yeah. P-H-O-T-O-F-Y. And it's a content marketing company. And it's it's a uh, business that my business partner, John Andrews, once again brought me into. John and I met about 11 years ago. John had, was just getting ready to leave Walmart. He was still there hmm. running their emerging media. Um, I was at Elf Cosmetics um, as the uh, CMO, and we both had a very similar outlook. We believed that everybody influenced someone. We, we believed at that time in the power of what influencers were called back then, truth be told, which was bloggers. Because yeah. bloggers are really, at least to John and I, we believe, a big part of the influencer community, mainly because sure. bloggers create content. And they create content regularly and they create a following and people read what they write. So back then, John started a business called Collective Bias, which was a content creation company that used a community of bloggers to create storytelling content at scale for brands. And wow. we were both doing it. He was doing it at Walmart. I was doing something similar at Elf. John started Collective Bias, um, as I like to say, drag me in kicking and screaming. Um, <laughs> thank God. M mainly because, of course, it was a startup. The pay was low. I was a divorced dad. Um, you know, it's hard enough to tell the woman you're living with that you have to cut back and, and not have the kind of money you used to have. It's almost impossible to tell that to an ex-wife. So I didn't join right in the beginning. Um, I was at Elf, and then I joined a company called Open Sky. Yeah. Um, and then I joined John, and we just did an amazing job of breaking down the barriers with brands to allow other people other than their agencies to create content for them. You know, a lot of people think this whole, I'm, I'm doing air quotes right now, influencer <laughs> part of media is something new, and it's really <laughs> not. Yeah, it's so funny. There are a few things that you already said that I want to discuss with you because everything is changing today and everyone is sure that they are inventing the wheel, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, influencer marketing, word of mouth marketing has been around since the Stone Age. <laughs> yeah, and and right. word of mouth marketing was was huge back in the in the 70s and the 80s because it was but it was people talking. What it really needed was these social platforms to enable it to scale and to be something where everybody can touch almost anybody else. And That's right. we kind of got involved in this first wave of, of digital um, influencer with the blogging community. And we experienced exactly what we're experiencing now with Fortify is that brands were not ready, necessarily ready for it. They weren't prepared to let people create content for them. It took a lot of banging on doors, a lot of resilience, a lot of patience, and a lot of hard work to break those doors down. And thank goodness we did. Mm -hmm. um, and we built a, a, a company that still exists today. It was acquired in 2016 ah. um, for a significant amount of money. So that was a good thing. And I thank John every day for that. So whenever <laughs> John comes knocking, you know, I join. Uh, after that, we about a year and a half after that, um, after we left, which was in 2013, we started a company called Prevailing Path, which was really a tool for us 
less than really a business. It was a business, but what it was was a tool to better understand the path to purchase, to better understand how people make their decisions, how retail is changing, the new retail relevancy. And when we had kind of learned what we wanted to learn and realized that if we kept developing a developing it, it would have been an agency business, which is not what we wanted to do. Mm. We both made a decision. First, John joined a company called Photify, whose advisory board he was on as CEO. And immediately I got an email saying, oh, and by the way, you're the CMO. <laughs> uh, um, and what, we, what we've been working on is we were taking a consumer photo app, which um, was, was something somewhat new when it first started five or six years ago. Now everybody can post photos with overlays and pictures. But yeah. we decided, and really I should say John, because John is really the thought leader when it comes to retail, was to turn it into a, an enterprise app for shopper marketing to help companies scale their content creation, which is becoming a huge challenge for companies. Very few can truly afford to pay an agency the, the amount of money it needs for the quantity of content they need to stay relevant. So our outlook is that you have to empower employees. And in, what we're talking about is something called employee-created content. Now, you've probably heard of employee-generated content. Sure. We, we're trying to differentiate ourselves. Employee-generated content was the, where it, the first wave. It's what companies like Collective Buy, I mean, um, companies like uh, Dynamic Signal, employee advocacy companies helped develop, where companies could create content and then give it to their employees on an app so that they could share it and increase the distribution of the content that we're creating. What we're saying is we want to move to what we call employee-created content, which is empowering and enabling employees to create content on a daily basis that represents the brand and to give the brand the tools to give them that allows the brand to at least have a little bit of oversight, to know that they're using the proper logos, the proper taglines, that the um, coloring is correct, that it really fits in to the way they want to present their brand. But then, and here's where the challenge comes in, then allowing their employees to do it on the fly, on their on own. On the fly, without going over each, of each content, or they do go over the content. Exactly. Now, we do have tools where you can monitor it a little bit more closely or there can be approvals, but our real outlook is that you need to let your employees do this. You need to let them create content, again, with guardrails, sure. with tools that give them the ability to do things that are in line with your brand. Of and of course, this tool also allows you or the, to create content, all the pieces that you see being created, employees that are the best to uh, make it available to other employees to share. But that's where we see things going. And just to give you a quick thing before we move on to your next question, what we've really realized and what we've decided to um, make our match with at the moment is mostly what we call direct sales companies. Um, and we also, we, even though real estate is not considered a direct sales business like a Mary okay. Kay or an Avon or a Norwex, they're very similar because the, the brokers and the realtors are individual employees that run right. their own businesses. And the reason we've, we've found our home in this area for the moment is because they're already pushing their, their sellers yeah. to create content. Every single one of them is saying the only way to build your business in today's market cost effectively is to get very active on social media and post content about the products you're selling. So that barrier 
that exists with, with human resources or the legal department in major brands is not mm. there with most direct selling companies. And then our goal is we are still pursuing because we really believe that retailers, franchise companies, food service companies, the only way to keep up with, with the necessary content, especially localized content that's searched every day by people looking for your business is to uh, empower your employees to take photos at work, to take photos of what you're doing, take photos of the food, of the clothing. And you're mainly talking about photos, right? You're saying creating content and it used to be that uh, people are, are waiting for their uh, employees to sit yes. and write something. But today you're talking about mainly visual content. Exactly. Photos, video. We started out in just photos. We've now made a move into, into some video content where we're empowering our app to be used for video content. But yes, perfectly stated. It's about visual content. And there's two reasons for that. It's not one of the reasons. Is what you hear every day is that people like to view things people don't read as much people want to see things but also but it's also easiest to create that way well before this became the norm when people would ask me how do I develop my social media strategy or how do I start whether it's for a small business or for them personally or even at a big brand I'd say use Instagram because making mm -hmm. content is as easily as pointing and clicking a button Content, 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 content. I took five pictures, I made five pieces of content, and I can post it, and I can move on with my day. And that's why I believe it's not just about that people like it, which of course is important, I mean, vitally important, but also because it's so easy to do. Like there's nobody that can say to you, they don't have time to point and shoot a camera five times in a day. Hmm, that's correct. And there are so many great things that you talked about, and I can't... Uh... We won't have the time to speak about all of them, but there are a few things that, or two things that I wanted to uh, talk with you. First of all, I really loved what you said. I mean, it seems like you caught the trends ahead of time, all the time, with the first company and with the second as well. And, uh, you know, while uh, people are talking about five years plan, you understood that it's not relevant anymore. We can't talk about five years plans uh, today. You said everything is changing. Well, you know, it's okay to make your five-year plan. Just be prepared to alter it hmm. on a regular basis. You know, I, I have... I certainly have no issue with people saying, where do I want to be in five years? Sure. But just remember that the odds of you staying on that trajectory for the five years is almost zero. Yeah. But it's still, that's, it's good because it sets you on the path you want to go on. It's true. And then you adjust as you go. And, you know, look, so personally, I don't do a lot of planning like that. And I don't have a problem with it. People that, that feel that that's something they're comfortable with, I think is good. My feeling is I just kind of make my plan as I go. I do say this is where I want to be, but I've learned. Now, remember, I'm 62 years old. <laughs> so I've seen two things. <laughs> how quickly yeah. the plans disappear and how many times you have to, you know, rebuild your brand or refine your way or start again or something like that, that I've just found for me and the way my mind works, you know, I, I kind of set shorter term goals. Especially today, you know, when I started to work with entrepreneurs, it was like, it was after many years with leading brands, but it was like 12 years ago, the biggest challenge was to change habits. Today, people are changing habits all the time. Making plans when people are changing their habits all the time according to the new product that is in the market or to the new trend is almost impossible in our world. The other thing I wanted to ask you or to emphasize is two respectable uh, 
CMO or CEOs in very respectable companies became entrepreneurs. And it's not because you didn't succeed. You both chose to leave the corporate world and to go to be entrepreneurs. Let's face it. You know, well, first of all, it's harder for me to speak for John, uh, although I think John always had an entrepreneurial instinct. For me, I've always been entrepreneurial. So, I mean, I was the kid that sold copper kiln pins when I was in fifth grade. Uh, my dad was one of the first guys with a company overseas that were bringing in digital watches. I sold them in high school. Um, in college, I always found things that I could that I could market or sell to people. And shortly after college, I got into, uh, I went into the investment business and then I started my own company. So... But then you came into the corporates, isn't it? Well, I, you know, first of all, I was, I've never really been in the large, large corporate world. I, I mean, I did work for 800 Flowers, but I don't consider them, <laughs> you know, they're not like an IBM or a Cisco or oh, well, well, any of yeah. the multi-billion dollar companies. But I did it out of necessity. Again, things change. My goal was to always be an entrepreneur, but I, you, things aren't always successful. The first business I ever started was very successful. Um, after that run finished, Um, I took some time off. I thought it would be I had been young when I started my first business. I had always had success. Um, and then I didn't have success. I started a couple of businesses that didn't work, and I found myself married with young children, and I needed to make a living. You know, you you hear a lot from some of these, you know, we, what, I don't know if we call them gurus or, you know, people that promote doing only what you love, <laughs> pursuing your passion. But, you know, that sounds good until the rent comes due. That's right. And until the bill for the supermarket comes through or your kids have to go to, to, to nursery school or to camp or they need clothes, you know, you have to do what you have to do. And I, I'm very fortunate in that I was brought up with a dad and a mom, but, you know, that encouraged me and taught me that you, your family comes first. You have to do what you have to do. You, you can't necessarily keep running a business if it's not providing for them. And I found myself, luckily, in a very entrepreneurial side of working for other people. I discovered the internet in 1997 mm -hmm. um, while I was at a job I had gotten um, at a company that processed food, believe it or mm -hmm. not. And I was helping them build a sales force because I was very good at that. But I wasn't happy and I wanted something more entrepreneurial and I discovered the internet. And then I, I read it, um, an article that was an interview of Seth Godin. And this, this is before Seth was Seth. Like this is before you, everyone knew who he was. Well, this was 1997 with his first startup. Now, he had made a name for himself in the marketing world, but in a very small, limited marketing world as a wonderkind product manager at Atari. Yeah. But, and, and then he wrote a few self-help books with Jay Levinson, hmm. which very few people, I mean, uh, people probably read it because of Jay, not necessarily because of Seth. And he started this company, which was the first online direct marketing company called Yo-Yo Dine. Yeah. And he was being interviewed. And not only did I think he was brilliant in the idea of how people buy from people they like and that you need permission to speak to people. He hadn't yet written the book Permission Marketing, okay. but he was talking about it. And I was very intrigued by the article. And at the end of it, they said to him, you know, this sounds like a great company. Do you have any job openings? And he said, well, I don't have any particular openings, but there's two things I'm always looking for. I'm always looking for smart people because that's how I'm building my company. And it doesn't matter what they've done in the past. He goes, and I'm looking for people that know how to sell anything because we're selling something no one has ever sold before. Hmm. And this was digital marketing. Sure. And I immediately typed out, yes, I typed it on a typewriter. <laughs> I typed out a cover letter to go with my resume and I put it in snail mail. <laughs> And I mailed it 
to Yoyodon. And at the time, this my it's my ex-wife now, but my wife was like kind of puzzled. She's like, why are you applying for a job where there are no jobs? I said, because he says he's looking for smart people that can sell. That's <laughs> me. That's me. <laughs> He, he, he nanny, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm here. And two weeks later, I get a call. I went up and I interviewed, and there's a lot of stories behind that that we probably don't have time for here. Um, but I ended up getting hired, and I started out just selling, you know, again, working for a guy named David Simon, who was the head of sales, and I ended up building a whole sales team for them. To sell a product that was the first click-through product ever sold on the internet when no one knew what a click-through was. All they knew wow. was what CPMs were. And and it was it was a remarkable experience, but it was very entrepreneurial. I mean, even selling what I was selling for Seth was entrepreneurial. And then, you know, his policy was, if you have an idea, we want to hear it. Like, don't keep your mouth shut. Don't be afraid. Um, and then I moved up through the digital world. Yo-Yo Dine was acquired by Yahoo yeah. um, about a year after I joined. I worked for Yahoo for about six months as part of the Yo-Yo Dine acquisition. And then I did not want to be a part of their big, large company sales machine. And I joined a company, uh, another company um, that was doing a lot of things with video. And then I moved on to 800 Flowers. And then that kind of started the process. From there, I went into a few other digital marketing companies. I did my own consulting for a while. But I always, I always steered back to small companies, to startup type situations. Mm. Elf Cosmetics, when I joined them, yeah. only had 5 million in sales and 10 oh. employees. Okay. So, you know, we we grew it to 50 million when I was there. So, yes, I made the move, but I was also always in that respect. As far as John, you know, John was entrepreneurial when he was younger. He took a lot of time between high school and college, um, mostly working in small businesses. And then he ended up, after getting an MBA, and again, he can speak better to this than I can, working for a lot of larger companies, but a, a few of them were mid-sized, got acquired. One got, one got acquired by Kodak. And eventually he found his way to Walmart, which of course is the large company of large companies. Of course. Um, and, and he was busting at the seams there. Just like me, we don't, both of us don't do well in corporate environments where every day we hear, we don't do it that way. <laughs> yeah. So I think it was an intrinsic part of both our natures to try to do something where we had more of a say. And, you know, look, I'm also lucky, and this is a message to a lot of your audience is that, you know, partnership is hard, but if you can find wow. the right partner yeah. and someone that has skills that either you don't have or things that you don't like to do. And, and by the way, you don't have to be complete. John and I are very much the same, but we also handle things very differently. And it, we've learned over time that it's, you know, I call him my business soulmate hmm. and it works. So, you know, it's going to work different for every person. Some people, you have a sales guy and a finance guy, you know, or an operational guy and a, and a finance and a sales guy. And with John, we're both kind of thinkers and we're content producers, but he is very touchy-feely. He likes to speak to his employees every single day. <laughs> he reaches out on the phone to people. He's willing to talk to anybody about anything, understanding that inspiration can come from anywhere. Yeah. And he thinks about the way things are changing. What's going to be different in retail? What's going to be different in marketing? How are we going to get people amongst the clutter of all this content to pay attention to what you're doing? Whereas my side is more on the, how do I build relationships? How do I get people to engage? How do I get people to notice what I'm doing so that they say, hey, what's that? Like, if you follow me, 
you'll notice I don't talk a lot about the companies that I'm working for or representing or that I own. I just use their tools. So everything, mm -hmm. a lot of what I post has Photify and overlays and things with content and logos so that as I do that at scale, people are always saying to me, wow, how are you doing that? What's Photify all about? And tell mm -hmm. me about it. And, and I liken that to what I say about sales and, and in my personal life. I prefer to be bought than to sell myself. Mm -hmm. I love that. Because we all the time say that people love to buy but hate to be sold to. So uh... exactly. And also, I find that when we sell, no matter how good a salesperson you are, we always tend to overcommit because usually when you're selling, you're going up against somebody or you're, you're having somebody come back to you asking for more and more. You want the sale. And again, regardless of how good you are, you tend to give up more. Whereas when somebody buys you, they're convincing you to work mm -hmm. with them. That's right. That's right. I love that. Um, Ted, you're an entrepreneur and I would like you to tell us your best advice. For entrepreneurs and especially for their customer approach or focus because this podcast this is what we are all about because I believe that marketing is all about seeing things from the point of view of the customer but this is also the thing that entrepreneurs are lacking and they're talking a lot about that so what would be your best advice to any entrepreneur that is listening to us um first of all believe in yourself It's probably the hardest thing to do, but understand that when you feel something in your gut, it's your brain talking to you. It's not just your heart. Like people say, oh, it's from my heart or I feel it in my gut. That's also your mind talking to you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important thing. And I feel too many, you know, analyze things too closely. Uh, and really and I'm, by the way, I'm guilty of the same thing. You know, what if this, what if that? Uh, I've learned that when I really need to make a tough decision, whether it's to keep moving forward, whether it's to change direction, whether it's to continue with the business I'm doing, I, I tend to try to get away from the business itself, whether it's a walk on the beach or a workout in the gym or whatever it is you do that frees your mind up a bit. And if you're like me, And I would have to venture a guess that a lot of entrepreneurs are like me. Your, your mind's always going, hmm. uh, you know, they, they, and it's hard to quiet it. You know, I've never been able to do meditation. People tell me to try it. But what I've found is those decisions come to me best when I, when I do something else. Hmm. So, it, it, and the same thing happens when I'm creating content. If I'm writing a blog post and I'm stuck, either I, and you very often it's at the end when I need to pick a, a title or I, need, I have one last line I need to write, I step away from it and I, and I go and do something else. And years ago, one of the things I used to do when I had a very, very active business with multiple offices and I, it was hard for me to really step away is I'd close my eyes and take a 10 minute nap. Hmm. And I found that I would wake up with the answer. Hmm. I really believe in what you're saying, but uh, I'll keep it for another time. But the combination between the ability to analyze on one hand, but the ability to feel when you listen to both, you, you get the answer. You, you, know, uh, you know, everyone talks about data, 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 and how the, the CMO of the future is going to be all data driven. <laughs> first of all, I think there's way too much data, and I think it confuses most people. Plus, you can make data speak to you in any way you want. But I think that what people don't realize <laughs> is gut instinct and judgment, especially if you're the person running, whether it's the CMO running the marketing or you're a business owner running your business, it, it, that data is being absorbed. And gut instinct and, and what you feel feel and your judgment is being guided by that data. Sometimes you're just not realizing it. That's correct. You've read it all. You've seen it. 
our minds are so much more complex than we ever realized mm-hmm. that a lot of those things that we call gut instinct is your brain siphoning through that data Definitely. and saying this is this is the way to go and then here's another thing that I just want to tell your people especially because I believe your audience is mostly a small or medium-sized business audience and correct me if I'm wrong they are they are you know because we all have limited resources I just believe that you need to listen to people and you need to listen to your customers Here's what's amazing. Every time I speak on stage, one of the slides I almost always put up on the board, depending on who I'm speaking to, but used almost in every presentation, is a picture of a fly on a wall. Mm. And I look at people and I go, do you know what that is? And you know, they go, it's a fly. I go, well, it's the proverbial fly on the wall. And we all know that expression, I wish I could be a fly on a wall in that meeting. Sure. And what's happened today is so much of, so many of us are so worried about who's coming to our website and who's commenting on our social posts, that we're forgetting to go to their pages and mm. see what they're talking about. All this market intelligence is out there for us mm. because people are writing things every day. And in a large company, you know, I assign everybody in the marketing team every day to go to the pages of 10 uh, of customers and see what they're writing and then get together and just kind of chat about it. And it's, sometimes it can be totally irrelevant. Other times it can be very important, but especially for a small business owner, And even more so, because people say, oh, in B2B, it's harder. It's actually easier because in B2B, Mm -hmm. you have a limited resource of potential customers. Uh, I mean, a a universe, a limited universe. You know, very often when you're selling B2C, there's like thousands or hundreds of thousands of customers. In, In B2B, you know who your customers are. And there's so much information they're putting out there that's valuable to you and listen to it and guide some of your decisions by what you're hearing. So, you know, what what gets in the way of this is people, you know, read about Steve Jobs and they read these one-liners that, you know, Steve Jobs didn't, his line was, don't ask people what they want, tell them what they want. And what I like to say to these people, are you Steve Jobs? Like, if you're the next Steve Jobs, then please tell (laughs) me what consumers are going to do. But if you're not, which you're probably not, (laughs) then you need to listen. And then one more. I hope it's okay if I give you one more in line with what we've been talking about. Please do. Please do. Is that I've been talking a lot the last year, and it's, it's a real passion of mine right now, is that the way we think about customers and the way we express the way we think about them guides the way we're viewed. I like to say that a brand is what you do. A reputation is what people remember and share. And what's gotten, we've gotten too much into this concept of targeting. Who's your target audience? How do we target mm-hmm. them? Let's target them today. Let's target them for this campaign. Words are very important. And when now that everything's so transparent and every consumer knows, which they didn't 30 years ago, but they know the word targeting is being used every day, <laughs> they feel like they're being hunted because nobody wants a target on their back. So what I want to try to get the entire marketing world to do, but especially smaller businesses, is to move away from the mindset of targeting to the mindset of matchmaking. Mm, I love that. Because nobody wants to be targeted but everybody wants a match, whether it's a product, a service, a relationship, an employee, uh, a boss, vendors, you all want to be matched. I want vendors that match well with me, that they're appreciating what I'm doing for them. I'm appreciating what they're doing for me. And mindset is very important. Words are very important. You know, I try to not say when I'm talking to people who are gun advocates, I try not to use the words gun control. Because the minute they hear the word control, they get their backs up. I try to talk about gun safety hmm. because who's going to say they don't want guns to be safe? So it, it, then it allows the conversation to move 
So I just I, what, what I really believe is really important for your audience is they start thinking about matching with the people they, they want to do business with, with the companies, with the businesses, with everything versus this is my target. And then the last part of that is that a target is a one-time thing. I target you, I hit you, I'm done. Matchmaking implies a long-term relationship. Love that. I really love that. And I think it really fits to what we talked before about the love to buy and the hate to be sold to. And now you've got successes. I read about them. But I would like to ask you first, and we'll talk about them in a minute, but I would like to ask you to share with us or to tell us about your biggest, most critical failure with customers, the one that affected your entrepreneurial journey the most or almost the most. Can you tell me this story? You know, I, again, b- back to the point that things change over time, uh, I'm going to give you an example. It affected me at that time. It didn't necessarily affect me. over the long term, but you know, it goes back to the concept of, of listening to your customers. So at one point in my entrepreneurial journey, I, after the investment business, when I, when I got out of that, the, the market turned in the late 80s, early 90s, and I still had this entrepreneurial bug. I did not want to go work <laughs> for somebody. And here's one thing that is really important and has lasted throughout my career. Is that very often entrepreneurs that they've had early success feel invulnerable mm-hmm. like I had had early success so I felt I could just do it again like I would just start another business like okay I'm shutting this one down I'm starting a new one I'm gonna make a lot of money again and that was a critical mistake I didn't do the research as much as I should I jumped in thinking that you know if I do it I'll do well with it and I saw that some other people were having some success and I, I, I of course assumed I was smarter than them mm. and better than them so I would do it better and I got into a business where I bought a franchise or it really wasn't the company was not at that point I bought I actually bought the rights to a product in a part of the country okay. and and I talked the product was something that was being sold by um, car dealerships but I didn't talk to the end users oh. I talked to the car dealerships okay. And I wasn't selling the end users, so I didn't think of them as my customer. Mm. And, and I made the mistake, and I would venture a guess, and I've, I've seen this happen with consumer products you know, that, that are sold in retailers, where the product is, is thought to be successful because somebody creates it, and they get some big retailer to jump in and buy a load of it. And then they start overproducing it because they don't wait to see if that retailer can actually sell it. Mm. Because the retailer was overconfident, thought they could buy it, but most retailers don't worry about that because usually deep in your contract is a clause where they can return the product <laughs> or mark it down and pay you less, uh, and, and, then, and then you get hurried. So I made that critical error. It was, it was in the early 90s. Um, I started a business that was a flat fixer that would fix a flat automatically mm. as you drove. You, it was this fluid you put in your car, and I just didn't I, – I made a critical error. which was not researching the consumer enough and, uh, and the issues they've had with this product and relying on the research I did to car dealerships saying, oh my God, this would be great. We can make so much money with this. We love it. Hmm. And falling flat on my face. I mean, I, it, 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 the, the business took off very well in the beginning because I can sell, but the, but the sell-through and the resale was non-existent. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. You said that it didn't really affect you for the long run. 
What do you mean? Well, see, that's not true. It taught me a lesson, which did affect me for the long run. The point I was making is it didn't knock me down. It didn't make me say, I can't do this anymore. It didn't cause me to believe that I could no longer build a business. Um, but the way it did affect me in the long run is it taught me the fact that um, I'm fallible, hmm. which I didn't think I was really up to that point, that it isn't just about the person that's running the business. You know, everyone always says it's about the people, but you know, you got to do your investigation of the product. You got to do your market research. You got to talk to, and this comes back to the listening. You got to get out and talk to people. Hmm. You got to get out and find out, you know, have they bought products like this before? If they had it, not just would they like it, but what are the, what are the upsides and the downsides? So it did affect me in that respect. And it also affected me in, in learning how to better research my partners because the people that I went into business with, now they were not my partners like John, they were the manufacturer of the product. Hmm. And I didn't, I didn't look deeply enough into them as either. Hmm. Now, I would like you to share with us or to tell us the story of your greatest, most significant success as a result of the right customer focus or something that you did write about approaching your customers. Well, okay, so uh, clearly, if we just look at my timeline and where how it affected me as my best success, it would be collective bias because i I believed in John Andrews, which drew me in. To a company even before I could join it I started consulting for it I was willing to throw myself into it at it where if it didn't work you know we talked I talked earlier about having to do what you have to do like I joined when they could pay me yeah enough for me to pay my bills but I was putting a lot into it um, we built a company that became basically the norm in how companies create content using outside people and bloggers so we It's, it's built my reputation it gave me a huge platform to build my personal brand and the company got acquired hmm. um, and and set me up for the rest of my life wow. so in, in that respect it was probably the biggest success for me personally when it came to the the far end result and the the monetary result probably my best success from really being Building a brand was elf cosmetics. It was not my company. Hmm. Um, I was brought in. I was not given as a marketer. Yes, I was not given any equity. Um, they had no marketing budget. You know people would ask, why would you take a job as a chief marketing officer at a company with no marketing budget? And, uh, because it was a challenge because anybody can spend a hundred million dollars hmm. on media. But what do you do right. when you have to create your marketing out of thin air? And, and it wasn't like I joined hmm. them when all these social media things existed and were accepted as a way to hmm. build a company. They were brand new. No one had ever used them. I wasn't even sure I was going to use them when I joined the company, although I knew a lot about digital marketing. Um, and then I made a very critical decision against the better ju- judgment of my advisors, of the guy who got me the job. And the owners of the company was to jump in with was to shut down everything every other avenue we were we were basically using and jump in with both feet to social media other than email marketing and wow. our website and but, but combining it all and then standing in the way for a year and not letting anybody market 
to the social media following I was building for Elf. I wanted it to be about conversation. I wanted it to be about building relationships. It's where I first started talking about return on relationship. Every day they'd push me like, because the company made a lot of its money on email marketing. And they're like, when can we market? When can we make offers? When can we give discounts? <laughs> and I, I, I protected it like it was my own children. I'm like, you can't touch them. Don't do this. And that's when I finally looked at the owners one day when they said, but what, where's our return on investment? Where's our ROI? And I said, mm -hmm. guys, it's not just about return on investment. It's about return on relationship. And they looked at me like, I, I, what, <laughs> what are you talking, what are you about? talking about? But luckily, the, the, it was not a big company. You know, it was a father's son. And they kind of looked at me and they said, hmm, you know, return on relationship. Uh, we want to hear more about that. Thank God they said they were too busy at that moment and that I should come back next week. <laughs> and it gave me some time to, I, I actually walked out of that meeting. And at the time, I had what was considered a lot of Twitter followers. I had about 2,000 Twitter followers, and, and I was one of the most followed CMOs on Twitter, believe it or not, with mm -hmm. that many followers. And I tweeted out, it's not just about return on investment. It's about ROR, return on relationship. And I got 20 immediate retweets and comments, and I knew – and by the way, to this day, when I come up with something new or an idea, I tweet it first, and I see how people react to it. And I started, and I'd always known that because I'd always been a relationship builder. And as time has gone by, and especially at Elf, I learned that um, more than just being a relationship builder, I'm a community builder. And I like to say that a network gives you reach, but a community gives you power. Um, mm -hmm. And and I learned that lesson there. And we built the company why in two years while I was there, from five million to fifty million dollars in sales. And we had the largest social media wow. presence for a cosmetics company. And now also timing was right. All the big brands were still afraid of social media. You know, uh, Estee Lauder and, 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 and Sephora, they were all jumping in, but with a lot of rules, a lot of regulations. I was working at a company with, with no legal team, nobody telling me what I could do and not do. Um, and I was fortunate to, to gain friends in the social world with guys like Jeffrey Hazlett, who was at Kodak at the time, breaking ground with social media, and Barry Judge, who was at Best Buy, doing the same with social media and we would sit and brainstorm and then at the end they'd say hey you try it because you can do whatever you want like oh my like i used to think how lucky they were mm -hmm. with their budgets and their teams and, and they look at me and go, oh man but you can do anything i i mean i could tweet or post anything and i, I built the first aggregated content site for a brand for um elf cosmetics that sucked in all the content created by consumers all they had to do was mention the brand, and it got pulled into this website, which we called Ask Elf at the time, because we wanted to separate it from Elf Cosmetics because we didn't know what was going to happen. We had no idea what kind of content was going to come in there. Filters were much harder to install than they are today. Hmm. And it ended up generating huge referral traffic for us from our customers who were posting really horrible content, but true, passionate, authentic content about how much they love the product. Wow. Love that. Can you recommend the best or most effective technological or digital tool that related to customer focus, marketing, or sales? However, I'm not looking for the shiniest last new product at the end of the endless list. I'm looking for something that really works for you and might work for our listeners as well. Well, uh, you know, of course, um, I'm a bit prejudiced. <laughs> so I believe Photify is a great app. It's Photify app in the App Store. Let's go for Photify. There's a free version, but, that, uh, you know, that, that has watermarks on it with Photify's name. But for very little money, you can upgrade to the Pro. 
and then you can lo load in your own logos, your own taglines, your own overlays for yourself and your customers. Um, that's one thing, you know, I'm a big fan of Instagram. I use Photify with Instagram yeah. again, back to what I said earlier is the reason I love Instagram for people that are not well-versed in social or don't know what to write. Um, they can easily just snap and create content and use another, I mean, if not Photify, use another app that you can put overlays on as long as you can load your own. So you can make it something that's about you. But most importantly, I'm going to tell you the best app and the best technology you can use and that's your own ability to build relationships and engage <laughs> it's so much more important than any tool you're going to find anywhere and then the last tool i'm going to give you everyone's going to be very surprised because no one uses this anymore but it's available to everybody when i'm on stage i like to hold up my iphone and say what do you call this and people say it's an iphone and i say what's the biggest word in iphone and they invariably say i and i go no the biggest word is is phone and you all have apps on your phone, but you don't realize that every phone comes pre-installed with an app that most of you have never used. It's the numbers zero through nine. And if you punch in a certain series of numbers, depending on where you live in the world, if it's in the United States, it's seven to 10 digits, <laughs> you can actually hear somebody's voice. You can actually, you don't have to use emoticons to express emotion. You can laugh, you can cry, you can raise your voice, you can whisper. My challenge to your audience is to pick up the phone every day for the next 30 days and call someone you haven't spoken to in a while and say, hey, I'm just calling to say hello and see if there's anything I can do to support you. And I promise you, you will find a remarkable change in the relationships you have with people at the end of that month. Love that. I love that. You know, there are many things that affect one's success. However, I do believe that for each of us, there is one thing that really makes it for them. And I want to ask you, what is your one key success factor? I'm going to go back to what I've been talking about and what's part of my brand. It's always been about relationships for me. Always. Mm. They've always come through for me. There's not been a company that I've ever worked for that I didn't leave with at least one to three very close relationships that stayed with me for the rest of my career, rest of my life, hopefully. And I believe that's the differentiator. And it is for many reasons. Number one is those relationships will last and, and get you people that can open doors for you, that can mentor you, that can help you, that can be there to support you, that just become friends because we all need friends, that are people while you're at those companies that you can work with and feel good about and understand things better and be made more comfortable. So for me, it, and it's true to who I am and what I write about, it, it's always been about return on relationship. Hmm. Let's talk about my mountain question. And as my listeners already know, I always imagine this journey in the mind of the customer as climbing a mountain and understanding where should we climb and then going step after step. And at some point I started to ask my guests, and that's what I'm asking you. Did you ever climb the mountain? or wish to climb a mountain, or do you have any relationships with mountains at all? Well, my business partner likes to climb mountains. Now, he's a, he's a trekker, not a technical climber. Okay. Um, he trekked to um, Everest Base Camp, um, which was something that he wanted me to join him on, but I didn't wow. do it. But what he did take me on was we, we trekked to the, or hiked to the top of Mount Katahdin, which is the highest mountain in the Northeast, up in Maine. Okay. In the Northeast of the United States. And we did that, I think it was about two years ago. Great. And do you have a photo of both of you climbing there? I, I do, as a matter of fact. 
So please send me the photo. You, we are talking about photos, aren't we? Uh, yes, and we were supposed to go in October, but we got delayed. And I think we were probably a couple of the last ones to do the hike before they closed it off for the season. Because when the snow comes in, they don't allow hikers in this national park, you know, past a certain point. And we were very fortunate. It was very cold, colder than we had planned, but we mm -hmm. were we were prepared, actually, because John's prepared and he brought some of the gear for me. But <laughs> it was really a special time for me because, you know, John loves doing that. For me, it's a little bit more of, a, of, an, of an effort. Although, as most of us are, we, we love accomplished things. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it, it, you know, he's trying to drag me to higher altitude climbs, which I'm resisting because I don't do well at high altitude. But this was perfect, and it was a, it was a great time, and it was great to be able to do it with John. Hmm, that's great. And the last thing, tell us, what is the best uh, way to connect with you for any of our listeners that would want to be in touch? Well, I'm very easy to connect with. So I'm Ted Rubin, T-E-D-R-U-B-I-N, on just about every social platform, uh, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. I'm Ted Rubin. My YouTube channel is Ted Rubin USA. And my email address is tedrubin at gmail.com. My phone number is 516-270-5511. Feel free to call. I know people are afraid of the phone, so I don't get too many phone calls from these types of things, but I'm happy to give out my number. I also list it on my Facebook page, on my LinkedIn page, in case you didn't get it here. We will put it in the show notes of this interview. Ted, I had a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. It was so interesting and refreshing. Well, I really enjoyed it too, Ted. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, and we'll be in touch. Please feel free to be in touch anytime for any reason. I will. I might even phone you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. And for you, our listeners, until the next time, it all goes down to this. You either reach or miss. Keep reaching your goals and vision. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Reach or Miss Show the podcast for the customer-focused entrepreneur. You can find all the information, links, and resources that was mentioned at the show in our website, reachormiss.com. See you next week.